good morning. Well, this is the first Sunday of the month, and so that means it's Family Sunday, and that means our children are here for the children's message. So, would the children come up forward for the children's message? Have a seat. All right. It's good to see you. All right. I have um, some questions for you, and... Um, I have some prizes as well that go with it, all right? So the first question is, what was yesterday? What was yesterday? What was yesterday, Eva? Fourth of July. Fourth of July, all right. So let's see. Here we go. You can wave that. Fourth of July, all right? Uh, what's, an- what's another name for Fourth of July? Independence Day, very good. All right. All right, now, what is... Independence Day or 4th of July? Uh-oh. Okay, what's Independence Day? When America declared independence, right. Actually, we also got it, too. Right? So, very good. All right. Now, next question is, where in the Bible do we learn about independence? Hmm. Hmm. Let's put it another way. Where in the Bible do we learn about freedom? Hmm. Hmm. Where do we learn about freedom? Do you know, Joshi? No? Okay, let's try this question. I'll make it a little different. How about this? Is freedom free? No. Oh, we have some different opinions here. Who thinks freedom is free? Raise your hand. No? A few? Okay. Who doesn't think freedom is free? Raise your hand. Okay. Why would you think freedom's not free? Why is freedom not free? It sounds like it should be, right? Anybody know? Why isn't freedom free? Nathan? Because if you want freedom, sometimes you have to go through some kind of obstacle. Okay, because if you want freedom, sometimes you have to go through some kind of obstacle. That's right. Very good. Okay, well, you know what? Freedom isn't free. Not even here in the United States. We're very blessed to live in a country where we can come to church freely like this. We can go wherever we want to go. We're pretty free to say what we want to say. But freedom that we have here had to be paid for by some people. Soldiers, men and women, have lived and died for us so that we could be free. And in the Bible, freedom isn't free either. Now, Jesus gives us freedom. What does Jesus give us freedom from? freedom from? Um, He gives us freedom to love, okay, but what does he give us freedom from? What does he give us freedom from? From sin. Very good. Thank you, Emily. All right, so God gives us freedom through Jesus, but freedom isn't always free because somebody has to pay for our freedom, and that's what Jesus did for us. I want us to look up at this Bible verses from John chapter 8, And um, we'll read them together. There they are. Okay, so let's say them together from John chapter 8. Let's say, Jesus said, if you, let's everybody read together. Jesus said, if you continue to accept and obey my teaching, you are really my followers. You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So if the Son makes you free, you are really free. So, How many of you have ever sinned? All of us have sinned, right? 
And how do you feel when you sin? You feel guilty or you feel sad. And if your mom or dad catch you, you might get punished. You might get sent to your room, sort of like being sent to jail. And you don't feel free. But you know what? Is that Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of our sins so that we could be free. And what Jesus is telling us in these verses is that when we listen to him and we obey him, then we won't sin. And that's what keeps us free so that we do what God wants us to do. And when we do what God wants us to do and we obey him, then the Bible says now that is real freedom. And that's what we celebrate, not just on the 4th of July. That's what we celebrate every Sunday. That's what we're celebrating today, is the freedom that Jesus gives us because he died for our sins and he rose from the dead to show that he has power over sin and power to give us life. So let's always learn to turn to Jesus and learn from him the way that we can always be free. Now, you're going to go to your Sunday school classes after I say a prayer, and you're going to learn more about the freedom that God gives us through Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, thank you that we live here in the United States, that we do have this freedom to worship you and to honor you and to serve you. Help us, Lord, to use that freedom wisely and boldly to obey you and to follow you and to also teach others about you. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so those of you who are in pre-K and K, you can stand up. All right, pre-K and K, and you're going out in that direction. Okay, with anti-mercy, out that direction. Pre-K K. First grade through third grade, you can stand up, and you can go out in that direction with Uncle Fidel. All right, first through third grade. And... Fourth and fifth grade, you go in that direction with Uncle Glenn. You can keep the flags. The flags are for you. Just. Well, good morning again. It's good to see you. Um, if you'll pull out your outline, if you got one. Um, today's message is called Living to Please God. And, uh, but if, I just want to, want to point something out on the outline in case you're wondering what happened there. You'll notice that we have our normal large lines for filling in the blank for the major points of the message. But we also notice that wherever there's an E on the outline, it turned into a blank line. That wasn't done on purpose. <laughs> um, it's just somehow when I converted the file, um, it, I guess I, had a, I was sinning that day. And I guess it just didn't want to work for me. So, um, so if you get really bored in the message, you can just fill in all the little E's, all right? Uh, that gives you something to do. I just sort of wanted to point that out. All right. Um, well, okay. What do you want to be? What do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? Now, we had all these little kids here, and I'm pretty sure that's a question that we would ask them quite often, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you know what? They don't really answer that question. All they do is mimic the answer of what the parents have told them. 
I mean, how does a little kid know what they want to be when they grow up? They know what they want to be because of the influence that their parents and their families have put on them. How significant adults have taught them, like, you ought to grow up and be this. You ought to grow up and be that. It's not the kid who decides what they want to be when they grow up. It's the parent. And I don't mind that as a parent, that is my responsibility. I do have the responsibility to tell my kids what they ought to be when they grow up. But that's not saying that they ought to be a doctor. That's not saying that they ought to be an engineer or a teacher or a lawyer or a millionaire. I'm not teaching them exactly what profession they are supposed to do. I am to teach them what profession they are to say and be. That there is something of the heart that is so important that when we think about what we want to be when we grow up, we as adults ought to influence the next generation and not be afraid to be that way. Paul was not that way. And in today, our passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul boldly says, finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live. How to live. What you ought to be when you grow up. How to live. And what does he say? We ought to live in order to please God. We ought to live in order to please God. And so this is what Paul is saying to you and to me. It's the same thing that David prayed in Psalm 19 when he said, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So that God is saying to us, what we ought to want to be when we grow up is to be people who are pleasing to God. And that's the theme of our message today. And that's our prayer for this day. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, help us to want to grow up to please you. Help us to want this more than anything else. Is it easy? No. But is it possible? Absolutely. How do we know? how to please you. Your word will tell us. Your spirit will lead us. You will empower us. You have shown us the way by giving us your son, Jesus Christ. We have an example. We have a leader. We have a Lord. Help us, Lord, to please you today. In your name we ask. Amen. So if you would look in your outline or look in your Bible, we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. And we're in a series called Being Ready and Getting Ready for Jesus' Return, which is what 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians is all about. It teaches us how to be ready when Jesus returns, and likewise how to be ready if we were to die today, to stand before God. And so Paul is telling us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, how to please Jesus and what it is that pleases him. So let me read verses 1 and 2. Finally, brothers, 
We instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Paul had given instructions to the Thessalonians, and they were obeying those instructions. They were obeying them because they came from the Lord Jesus and because he had authority. And so the first way that we learn from God's word here on how we can please God is to make a decision. And that decision is to say, I will walk according to the authority of the Lord Jesus. I will walk, I will live according to the authority of the Lord Jesus. So that word live, how to live in verse 1, could also be translated how to walk, how we should walk in this life. And so God has given to us a means of knowing how to live in this life, and that is that he has said to us, I am your authority. Now, we all need authority in life. We may not all like it, but we all need it. As a parent, I need to have authority over my children. Now, raising children is very difficult. Raising children is tough. Um, and, and a lot of times your children don't want to do what you know is best for them, right? I think all parents agree with that. And so as we were raising our children, um, my wife would read all these books on how to raise children and then tell me what I'm supposed to do. Right? So she would read and I would obey. And there would be different times where I would try to get my children to obey me and she said, no, you can't do it that way. Okay. So, for example, I would tell a child what to do, and they would say something like, well, why do I have to do that? So I would usually give one of two answers, both of which were wrong. And Carol would say, no, you don't say that. And so there were two of them. And the second one was, I would say, the child would say, well, why should I do that? And I would say, because I said so. And that was the first answer that was wrong. Okay? Because I said so because they need something a little more practical. They need to understand why, not just because I said so, but the set, number one wrong answer I would often use when my child would question, why do I have to do that, is I would say, because I'm the dad. Because I'm the dad. And again, that was the wrong answer. Because that doesn't tell the child why it's right to do what it is that I want them to do. God doesn't even do that. God doesn't say, because I said so. And God doesn't even say, because I'm the Heavenly Father. At least not first. He does say it, but he says it in context to other things, that we might understand why he has authority and what that authority means. What does God's authority mean to us? It means, first of all, that he is giving us his love, his grace, and his peace. If we look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, if you go back there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, in verse 1, we see that Paul says that God comes to us in grace and peace. Grace and peace. So authority comes from a God who gives to us his grace, his forgiveness, and his peace. If we go to verse 3 in chapter 1, we see that God gives us hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So God's authority comes with hope. 
And if we go to chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, we see that it says, we are not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. So another portion of God's authority is this, is that he knows and he sees what is in my heart. So now, if I know these things, I know that God loves me. I know that God gives me grace and God gives me peace. I know that God offers me hope, but I also know that God sees into my heart. Now I have a foundation for that type of authority that means something. That he knows what is right. He knows what gives peace. He knows what gives love. He knows what gives hope. And now if I obey that authority, those are the things that I can trust that God will give. God gives us his authority so that we might know how to live. In Psalm chapter 19, verse 7 and 8, the Bible says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. So the authority of God is a perfect guide. The authority of God is his word. The authority of God is what he tells us as what is right and how to live. It gives joy to my heart, and it gives a revival to my soul. It is also a practical truth on how to live right before God. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, the Bible says, Every scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the person dedicated to God may be capable and equipped for every good work. And so God's word is our authority. It is a perfect guide, and it is a practical guide. It says every scripture was given not by man, but was given by God. And so when we are looking for authority in our life, we need to have a perfect authority. We need to have one that is unbending. We need to have one that is absolute. We need to have a truth that doesn't change. And that's what God's word promises us, is that we have a perfect guide and we have a practical guide on how to live. And this is our authority so that whatever other decisions we need to make in life, we turn to this authority for our life. And it gives us the confidence that what we do is right and right before God. And so now Paul, having established the authority that God's word has, now begins to give commands on how we continue to please God by obeying those commands. And so the first ones are found in verses 3 through 8 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And again, I'll read and you can follow and if you want in your Bible or in your outline. And it says there, it is God's will that you should be sanctified that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this manner no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live holy, a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, 
who gives you his Holy Spirit. And so the first way that Paul says that we live in a way that is pleasing to God is that we make a decision that says, I will control, I will control my own body to live in purity. I will control my own body to live in purity. That's exactly what Paul says in verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. It may seem a little strange that the very first command God gives that says you can please God deals with sex. But we have to understand that Paul is speaking to a church in Thessalonica, which is near where Greece is today. And the Greek and the Roman culture of that day was filled with sexual perversion. In fact, it was considered normal for any man to live out his sexual desire in any way that he wanted. Whether he was married or not, he could have mistresses, he could have fornication, he could have prostitutes. All that was considered normal in that day. It was a sexually active culture. It was not that different in that way than what we have today. And Christians were under pressure to act the way that everybody else was. They were having that pressure to live in the same way. But Paul was saying, no, you now have to live counterculturally. You have to live in purity. You have to live with self-control to control your body so that it is pure. They had to fight against the way of the world, just like you and I have to fight against the way of the world. It's not easy. We live in a culture that is oftentimes causing us to try to live the way they are. And we have to try to fight against that. There is um, a desire in our life to not be different than other people. But God says that we, we must be different. We must be different. You know, we're in a world where oftentimes it's easy to say that we need to live politically correct, right? We need to be PC. And actually, political correctness is now in our dictionary. Merriam-Webster Dictionary says this, political correctness is agreeing with the idea that people should be careful to not use language or behave in a way that could offend a particular group or people. Okay, so we live in a world of political correctness. Um, you know, that is something that we just struggle with. And some things, I suppose, are okay in political correctness. Um, earlier this month, or actually it was a month ago now, uh, we took Nathaniel up to Berkeley to register for his classes. And so he had his orientation, and the parents had their orientation. And when we asked him, he came back from his orientation. He said, well, how was it? He said, oh, it was all right. So what were some of the things you learned? What were some things you did? He goes, well, one thing that I learned is that at Berkeley, um, you say y'all. You say y'all. And I thought, well, that's sort of funny because this isn't the South. I've been in the South, and it's really fun. You go down South, and you go, hey, hi, hi y'all. You know, and it works out really well. And I go, well, why do you say y'all at Berkeley? And he says, because you don't say, you guys. You say, well, I go, gosh, you know, this is California. We just say, come on, you guys, let's go. And he goes, no. He goes, you know, that's not, that's not gender correct. <laughs> because, you know, you, you, don't, you can't say, you guys, because you're leaving out your gals. So you have to just say, y'all. I said, really? He goes, yeah. So well, that's interesting. Okay, I could live with that kind of PC. That's all right. But there are other areas where we cannot live with PC. 
And unfortunately, we live in that kind of culture today. And Paul addresses it when he says that you are to live a sanctified life. The Holman Christian Standard Bible defines sanctification in this way and talks about it. It says the passage, it should be up there, the passage does not say to abstain from sex practiced in the context of marriage, but sex that deviates from God's standards. This would include premarital sex, incest, homosexuality, and adultery. And so God's word is very specific. And if we were to look at the whole of God's word, sexual immorality isn't just things that men might do outside of marriage with other women. It has to do with what men and women do with sex in regards to keeping their body holy. And so we have to turn to God's word, our authority, to help us when we face these questions of PC, of what is politically correct. It's very easy to want to be politically correct because it helps us to not feel like we're offending anybody. But what happens then is we end up being more pressured to please people than to please God. And so I think what God's word would tell us is don't be PC Instead, be PG, okay? So don't be PC, but instead be PG. Please God. Please God. And this is the way that God's word would have us to please him, is to obey him. I know this is a very sensitive issue. And we have been living with it for a number of years now in the United States, probably about 50 years, actually, since the sexual revelation in the 60s. But it's come down to this past week, this past month, where we know the situation with our courts and with the the questions of same-sex marriage. And and this message is not at all meant to be in any way about politics, but about what God's word says. And so God defines sexual immorality. And there's lots of verses, but I'd like us to look at two main ones right here. And the first one is in Romans chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. I'd like you to read this out loud with me. Romans 1, 26 or 27. Let's say it together. God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned their natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Okay, so we see here God's word is speaking about homosexual acts. It's not necessarily speaking about just homosexual tendencies, which I'll mention a little bit later. But it's talking about the actual actions of homosexual behavior. And God's word clearly says that it is a perversion and it is indecent. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 11, God's word again speaks about what sexual immorality is. Would you read these verses with me? Let's say it together. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offender, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So we have two things going on here. Obviously, we have God's definition of sexual immorality, which deals with homosexuality, but also deals with other things as well. It also deals with idolatry. It deals with adultery. It deals with prostitution. It deals with greediness. It deals with being drunk. It deals with being a slanderer or a swindler. All those things are equal in God's eyes as sin. And this is what God would have us to know, that he sees this as sin and sexually immoral and not what he would want for any man or for any woman. But the good news is that it also says, and that is what some of you were. And I think Paul was so eager to get to those words as he was writing. He wouldn't have known he was writing verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 6 9, but he was um, writing, and I'm sure he was thinking about what he was about to write, which is what we have in verse 11, and that is what some of you were. He wants us to know that God is in the business of forgiveness and of redemption, that God is in the business of helping us to see that our sins can all be forgiven that God has given to us his grace, and that God would have us to be people who live with grace and with graciousness. It's important for us to talk about these things and to talk about these things even at home. I don't assume that you necessarily agree with me, and I'm pretty sure here that some of you won't agree with me. And I don't even assume necessarily that my own children or my wife will agree with me on things. And so we talk about it. And we were talking about this at the dinner table this last week. And I learned some things in talking with my children. One of the things that I learned was that um, if somebody is a homosexual, most of them don't like to be referred to as a homosexual. If it's a man, they would prefer to be referred to as gay. And if they're a woman, they'd rather be referred to as lesbian. They actually consider it an insult to be called a homosexual. I think that's important. Because Carol and I have friends who are homosexual or who are gay. And we've had them over for dinner. One of Carol's co-workers was gay, and we had him over for dinner at our home one night. Um, one of my best friends, um, his brother is gay. And recently we've been talking about that and just sort of how hard it was for him. And he faced a situation that my daughter asked me about this week as we were talking about this topic. She said, Dad, um, if you had a really good friend who was gay, would you go to his wedding? And, and I had to think about that. And after I thought about it, I said, well, if he was my really good friend, I would go to his wedding. And as I thought about it, I had to say, well, why would I do that? And I would say, well, because he's my really good friend. And I would want to support him as a friend, though I may not agree with him in the way that he lives. And then Anja asked me, so dad, if he asked you to officiate his wedding, <laughs> would you do that? And um, he said, stop asking so many questions. <laughs> um, so I said, no, no, I wouldn't do that. And I think that if he was my really good friend, he wouldn't ask me to do that either. 
Is it easy? No. See, we live in a world where PC sounds right because PC pleases people. It's so much easier and natural to please people than it is to please God. And I don't necessarily want you to believe what I believe all because I believe it. I want you to believe what God says, what God teaches. Because as the first point said, it is the authority of God that determines what we ought to believe. We need an authority to determine what we ought to do. God gives us his authority. PC is not our authority. God is. And so God defines sexual immorality. God also defines what marriage is. In Genesis chapter 2, 24, we see these words, the very first words about marriage in the second book of the Bible. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall have, be one flesh. One flesh. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus says, Haven't you read, he replied, At the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. So God has defined marriage, and Jesus has reaffirmed it in Matthew 19. In response to what happened in the past week with the Supreme Court decision about same-sex marriage, Franklin Graham, Billy Graham's son, said this. He said, With all due respect to the court, it did not define marriage and therefore is not entitled to redefine it. God defined marriage long before the United States even existed. The scriptures have been around for 2,000 years. God has given us his word for what marriage is and why it is so important. Now, why should this be so important? Why not just let live and let live or love and let love? Why not just sort of turn the other cheek on this issue? It's because of what Jesus says that marriage represents and what Jesus says that what marriage is. Paul helps us to understand it as, once again, we will see these same words about one flesh. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 through 32, the Bible says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ 
and the church. And so what makes this such an important issue is not just that we have some strong view of what morality and immorality is. What makes the issue of homosexual marriage, what makes the issue of same-sex marriage so important is what the Bible teaches about the meaning and the purpose and the picture of marriage, as we read about here in Ephesians 5. For this reason, Jesus quotes again, or Paul quotes from Genesis, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. It is a picture of Christ and his church. Pastor Rick Warren, Saddleback Church, recently said this regarding Ephesians 5 passage that we just read. This is the deepest meaning in marriage. This is the most profound purpose of marriage. And this is the strongest reason why marriage can only be between a man and a woman. There is no other relationship, including the parent-child relationship, that can picture this intimate union. To redefine marriage would destroy the picture that God intends for marriage to portray. And we cannot cave on this issue. It's a picture of Christ and his church. And so this is why it is so important. And it is this reason that God has given to us in his word, which is our authority, an established boundary of what is right and what is authoritative, and how we have to choose from that what we believe God's word would teach us, God's word will tell us. God wants us to live holy lives, and God will give us the help to do that. He will also give us the help on how we ought to speak and how we ought to live. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, Paul tells us he's going to give us his Holy Spirit. He says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So the reason that we hold our body as holy is because the Holy Spirit lives within us. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, the Bible says, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. God wants us to be people who live as he lived, that we might have the character of holiness that he has. You see that there are the three devotional things that have been given to you in each of the point of time with Jesus and they really encourage you to think about these on your own because, as I said, it's not important that you agree with what I say. It's important that we agree with what God says. But I encourage you to think about these questions about how you, too, struggle with political correctness or how you might struggle with pleasing God, as I know I struggle with it. Well, it's interesting that after Paul gives these very strong words about immorality, he doesn't say, now go to the streets and preach it. He doesn't say to become political activists. He doesn't say to go to the vote and go to the ballot box and vote so that your way will be done in culture. He says something very interesting. He gives very strong words, but this is what he says in verses 9 through 12. Now, about brotherly love. 
We do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not dependent on anybody. Interesting. Paul says you ought to be ambitious, but he doesn't say to be ambitious in the political world. He doesn't say to be ambitious and try to change the world. He says, I want you to be ambitious in this, and I want you to change your faith community. I want you to be ambitious to be committed to be in a self-giving community. He talks about this brotherly love, the famous Philadelphia love of brother and sister and sister and brother caring for each other. And he also talks about the famous agape love, the love of giving yourselves as God would give. And he says, this is the kind of love that you are to have. Yes, you are to live sexually, morally, and pure lives before God. But you are also to live in a community that shows this kind of love to other people that they may want to be a part of it. That we would make a difference in this world, not just by being active out in the world, but by being more active within the community of faith. William Barclay, a commentator, said this, The only way to demonstrate that Christianity is the best of all faiths is to show that it produces the best of all men or the best of all, y'all. <laughs> when we Christians show that our Christianity makes us better work people, truer friends, kinder men and women, then we are really preaching. This is what God wants, that the only way that Christianity is the best of all faiths is to show that it produces the best of all men. As a pastor, I think this is what Paul wanted for his people in Thessalonica more than anything else, was that they loved each other. The word ambition means all stirred up. So Paul uses a bit of a paradox here. He says, I want you to be all stirred up to live calmly. I want you to be all stirred up to live a quiet life. I want you to make it your own desire to mind your own business. And to work hard with your own hands. And to be at peace with each other. Don't we need that in this world? A place where we are loved. We may not agree, but we love because we all are under the same banner of Jesus Christ. That our relationships, Paul is saying, is also a test of our holiness. Not just how well we control our sexual passions or other desires but how we love one another and care for one another. That these test us in our lives. This coming week, um, this Thursday actually, we have 12 families from Harvest that are going to be going down to San Diego together as a testimony of this type of unity, as a testimony of this kind of love. Um, if you're one of those 12 families, would you stand up right now if you're one of those 12 families that are going down? I know there's, um, there's a number of them that aren't, aren't um, inside. They're either teaching today or they're on a little vacation this weekend. Okay, so we have about 50 people going down to San Diego this week as, as ambassadors of Harvest Community Church.
who are seeking to bring down, you may be seated now, thank you. You may be going down to share the love of Christ, working together, giving to other people the love that God has given to us. We're going down to San Diego. We're working with um, some of the inner city ministries there, caring for people, showing them the love of Christ with a ministry called Youth Works. And we'll be going there to show that God's love has power as we work together and share with each other. And this is the opportunity we have, not just as a team going down to San Diego, this is an opportunity we have living here in Irvine. This is the opportunity we have living as a church of Jesus Christ, of making a difference in this world, being, being ambitious to live as a loving community together. There is power in this kind of love. There is activity in this kind of love. There is faith in this kind of love. And there are people in this kind of love who will be loved. If you look at the quiet time question, it simply says this, who do you know? who could really use an expression of brotherly or sisterly love? And what can you do to show them that love? So do it and enjoy it. If you think of somebody who needs love this week or you see somebody, love them. Do something for them. Show them that you care. Be with them. Give them an encouraging word. Spend time with them. Help them in any way that you can. We're going to sing a song in just a minute. It's called The Power of Your Love. And I want you just to pay attention to the first phrase of each of the stanzas. And the first one is this. Lord, I come to you. Let my heart be changed, renewed. This is God's invitation in our way to respond to it, to come to him, to let our heart be touched by him. The second stanza says, hold me close, let your love surround me. And this is what we all need. This is what pleases God, is when we allow him to love us and to hold him close. The third says, Lord, unveil my eyes, let me see you face to face. Someday we shall see God face to face. And the desire that God has for us is that we would desire it and that we might be ready to see him in that place. And lastly, the same as in the second stanza, hold me close, let your love surround me. This is what pleases God, and this is what pleases us as well, to be held in the love of God, to be ambitious in a community of faith, to share that with others, and to make a difference. Let us please God, and in the process, I promise you, you will not only please other people, but you'll ultimately and also be pleasing yourself. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can please you in the way that we live. We thank you that you give us your authority through your word on how we can be pleasing to you. Lord, I pray that we would seek to live according to your word that we would be those who read the word of God and study it and let it teach us what you want. Lord, you gave us your cross to show us the full extent of your love and how far you would go to pay the price for our sins. Help us, Lord, to live out that cross in love to others. Help us, Lord, to live it out for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
I will ask the just come forward with the offering baskets. If it's the first time that you're here at Harvest, yeah, please fill out the form on the, the, the bulletin and go ahead and drop that in. But right now, yeah, let's sing the song that um, Pastor Curtis had mentioned, The Power of Your Love. And we know that all these things that's asked of us, if we try to do these things on our own, we will fail. It's only by his, the power of his love and his spirit that we can be transformed, not from the outside in, but from the inside out, from our hearts. So right now, let's just sing this song. May the Lord renew us, renew our hearts, 